This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and these are the words that he pens. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He, Jesus, said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you, on the other hand, say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Three main points on your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes. Number one is this. Jesus is confronted with worthless worship. Jesus is confronted with worthless worship. This is the first movement in the text, the first scene in the text. We see it in the first five verses. Jesus and his disciples have now returned to Galilee, more specifically to Gennesaret, uh, from their short stay in Bethsaida. Remember, Bethsaida is that small city on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had taken his disciples to rest. Everybody take your fingers in two seas like this and put them together and make a circle. Got it? Okay, as you're looking at the circle, this is the Sea of Galilee here, okay, Bethsaida would be up here by your right fingernail, okay? That's where Jesus and the disciples were. That's where Jesus fed the 5,000. They've gotten back in their small boat, and they have rowed back across the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so now they're on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Some six miles or so by row. We said a couple of weeks ago eight to ten miles uh, by, by walk. And while rest may have been the, the, the intention, uh, while Jesus and his disciples were in Bethsaida, There where he fed the 5,000. We learned a couple of weeks ago that that short trip there to Bethsaida was anything but rest. Remember the crowds uh, saw Jesus and his disciples uh, there in the boat and they followed them along the shore. I mean, they were literally rushing, running along the side of the shore with them, met them there in Bethsaida. And so though the intention was rest, what ended up happening was a night full of ministry. 
A night full of ministry. As a matter of fact, uh, Luke in his gospel tells us that when Jesus and his disciples were there, Jesus spoke to the people about the kingdom of God. He cured those who had sickness and disease and need. And then he multiplied the small provision of the disciples and he fed the 5,000. That's where we left off last week. That's where we left off. And so now... Having arrived in Gennesaret, Jesus and his disciples are promptly met by a group of Pharisees and scribes. A new group. Not just the crowds now, but a group of Pharisees and scribes who had come down from Jerusalem. Now, who are these fellows? Who are these Pharisees and scribes? Well, the word Pharisee likely comes from the Hebrew word parash, and it means to separate or to detach. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees... uh, were very joyful at at the knowledge that people would look at them and see them as being the detached ones or the set-apart ones or the holy ones. Took a lot of pride in that. The Pharisees were known for their personal piety and their strict observance to the law of Moses. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus told his disciples, speaking about the scribes and Pharisees, he said, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And to sit on Moses' seat means that the scribes and the Pharisees put themselves in a position as teachers of the law, as practitioners of the law, as the teachers of God's word of the day. Mark tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees uh, that, that Jesus interacts with here in our text, they're from Jerusalem. Now that's no insignificant detail. As you're reading there in verse 1, I mean, here come the scribes, here come the Pharisees, but it is no insignificant small fact that they are from Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the epicenter of Jewish thought and Jewish spirituality. This group of scribes and Pharisees were the executives from corporate. All right? That color in for you a little bit? That's, that's who's come here to meet with Jesus. And they're not coming looking for a cordial conversation. They're not looking just to interact on a, hey, how you doing basis. As a matter of fact, these scribes and Pharisees already hate Jesus. They're just looking for another reason to kill him. Okay? Which is interesting because one would think that Jesus would have been friends with such a group like this. I mean, the scribes and the Pharisees were Jewish. Well, Jesus was Jewish. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they held Moses and, and the law of God in high regard. Well, Jesus also thought highly of Moses. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. But for as much as these men had seemingly in common, Jesus was no friend of the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus has already butted heads with uh, these executives from corporate a number of times in Mark's gospel. Remember when the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners back in chapter 2? What did they say? When they saw Jesus' disciples eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said, why does he, why does Jesus and his disciples, his followers, why does this rabbi and his students eat with tax collectors and sinners? Later in chapter 2, when some of John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, The scribes and the Pharisees asked, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but Jesus, your disciples don't fast? Tell us why. Then later, when Jesus and his disciples were gathering heads of grain on the Sabbath, the Pharisees came to him and said, look, why are they, that is, his disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
Later that same day, Jesus healed a man in the synagogue who had a withered hand. And the Pharisees immediately, Mark writes, went out and held a council with the Herodians, the the sympathizers of Herod, to figure out how they might destroy him. Friends, Jesus is a friend of sinners, but Jesus is no friend of the scribes and Pharisees. Here again, we see that Jesus butt heads with the religious leaders of his day. And you ask yourself, what's, what's the spark that ignites all the controversy in our text this morning? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Here it is. Mark wastes no time telling us what the dispute is uh, here in uh, our text for this morning. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, he tells us, they, they saw that some of his disciples, that the scribes and the Pharisees, saw that some of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, it's presumable here that the scribes and the Pharisees did not see Jesus' disciples sitting down for a meal. Remember, Jesus and his disciples were constantly on the go a couple of times already. Just in these seven chapters, it was said of Jesus or his disciples that they didn't even have time to eat. Remember? It was said of Jesus that he was, he was so, uh, so involved in his teaching and preaching ministry that he didn't even have time to eat, such that his family was concerned about his welfare. And then later on, the same thing was said about the disciples. The disciples had just been with Jesus as Jesus fed the 5,000. And we ended the text last week with there being 12 baskets of bread left over. I said one for each of the disciples. And so it's very presumable here that Jesus and his disciples aren't sitting down for a meal, but they have simply reached in the baskets as they are on the go and are having some some sort of snack throughout the day because they don't even have time to sit down and to have a proper meal. And this caught the watchful eye of the scribes and Pharisees. Now the word defiled or impure or unclean, look at verse 2. You probably see one of those words there. The word defiled or impure or unclean. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were, the ESV that I'm teaching and preaching from here says, that were defiled. That is, unwashed. Unwashed. Well, that word there in your Bible, defiled, impure, or unclean, it it is a translation of the Greek word koinos. And originally, koinos... uh, meant just that that is common, that that is ordinary. As a matter of fact, when we talk about the the original language that the New Testament was written in, it was written in Koine Greek or common Greek. But later in Greek, it came also to mean, as it does here in our text, what is vulgar or what is profane. Your disciples eat in a way that is vulgar or profane, the scribes and the Pharisees say. The next step was that it it went on to mean that which is ceremonially unclean. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't objecting because the disciples were eating with dirty hands, but rather they were objecting because Jesus' disciples had not gone through the accepted purification rituals before eating. They weren't concerned with hygiene. They weren't concerned they might get sick. They weren't concerned that they might have dirt under their fingernails. What they were concerned with is that Jesus' disciples were not operating in light of the tradition. The tradition of the church. Jewish tradition. You know, it's interesting to note that early Jewish rabbis promoted the idea that Moses actually received two laws at Mount Sinai, the written law, the the Torah, and then the oral law, the Mishnah. 
Now, the Torah, first and foremost, meant, meant the Ten Commandments, but it was also uh, more inclusive or more expansive. It went on to mean the first five books of the Bible. But the Jews also believed that God had given to Moses an oral law called the Mishnah that was to be passed down orally to the people of Israel. And that's what Mark is referencing here when he speaks about the tradition of elders. The tradition of the elders, that oral law that the rabbis said was given to Moses on Mount Sinai that was to be repeated and passed down to subsequent generations. Now, in general, the Torah, or the law of God proper, was understood as policy. They were commandments, and its commandments declared what God decreed, but not always how those commands were to be fulfilled. You think about the Ten Commandments here for a second. Those are decrees, those are laws, those are precepts that tell us how to honor God, but they don't speak to every single potential instance in life. Thus came the Mishnah. You see, the oral tradition, the Mishnah, on the other hand, prescribed an infinite uh, number of very finite details as to how the proper law of God, the Torah, was to be lived out. And so the Mishnah became known as the fence, became known as the fence around the Torah or the fence around the law to protect the integrity of the written law. And it, it sought to protect the integrity of the written law, the Ten Commandments, by elaborating and expanding upon them until there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of thousands of little minute written laws and regulations governing every single possible action and every possible situation in life. You'll see in a moment how oppressive this was. This is, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24 when he, when he rebuked the scribes and the elders by saying the scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. All these laws and precepts and rules and regulations that, that were originally... The original intention was probably very good, but what happened is over time, the oral tradition, the, the legalistic rules began to eclipse God's law, and we began to, to exchange God's law for man's word. We began to exchange God's word for the precepts of man, the tradition of man. And that's exactly where you get this ceremonial hand washing here. It was the oral tradition that the scribes and the Pharisees were all up in arms about here when they are taking Jesus' disciples to task over not washing their hands. Again, look at verse 3. Mark writes, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Not holding to the word of God, not holding to the law, holding to the tradition of the elders. There were very definite and rigid rules for the washing of hands. Before every meal, and even in between each of the courses, the hands had to be washed according to the tradition of the elders. 
They had to be washed in a very certain way. Because it was actually believed that a, that a demon, uh, Shibta, Shibta, a demon uh, lived on your hands. So it's Jewish superstition. And if you did not wash your hands, if you were not ceremonially clean, then Shibta could, could get inside you and inhabit you. And so not only are we talking about all kinds of extraneous rules and commands and laws that were made up, but we're also talking about religious superstition here. Thinking about this hand washing here, the water for the washing had to be kept in a special large stone jar. It had to be kept unmixed so that the water itself did not become defiled. Because you couldn't wash your hands that were defiled with water that was defiled because that would do nothing to cleanse you of the defiled hands. You see? And so how did this take place? Well, first the hands were, were held fingers pointing upward. Okay? And a log, at least a log of water. You want to know what a log is? It's one and a half eggshells. All right? At least a log of water had to be poured over each hand. And you wanted to be careful that, that it didn't drip all the way down your elbow because it didn't have to, to make your whole arm clean. We're talking about just the, the hands here. And so a, a log of water, an, at least an eggshell and a half worth of clean water, uh, had to be poured over the hand, pointed up here, uh, and then you would, you would ball up the fist of your other hand and you would wash that, that hand there with the clean water with the balled up fist of the other hand. Uh, in between each of the fingers there, making sure that no water ran down your elbow here. Uh, and then when you were done, uh, you had to, with another log of water, at least an eggshell and a half worth of water there, uh, rinse that hand off with the fingers pointed down so that that now unclean water did not get on anything else. And then you would repeat the process with the other hand. To fail to do this was in Jewish eyes not to be guilty of bad manners, not to be dirty in the, the sense of your health, but to be unclean in the sight of God. To, to the Pharisaic and the scribal Jew, that was the essence of worship. That's what it meant to please and honor God. The problem is, God never commanded that. There were very specific hand-washing directions that were given to the priests way before, but none of that was ever commanded to the people. These were burdensome laws and commands and precepts and traditions that were heaped among the people, heaped upon the people, and they thought by jumping through all these hoops they were somehow pleasing God. True worship got, got buried under a mass of taboo and, and rules. Look at verse 4. Mark tells us that there were many other traditions. Mark writes, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. I mean, to a, to a pious Jew, a Gentile was unclean. To a pious religious Jew, a Gentile was unclean. Food touched by a Gentile was unclean. Any vessel touched by a Gentile was unclean. And it was highly likely that if you went to the marketplace, you were going to touch something, pick something up, brush something that a Gentile had touched. So going to the marketplace, you came home unclean regardless. Because a Gentile had probably been there. 
And so when a strict Jew returned from the marketplace, he immersed not only his hands, but his whole body in clean water to take away the taint that he might have acquired. And that's only the tip of the iceberg, friends. Certain animals were unclean. A leper was unclean. Tax collectors were unclean. A woman during menstruation or after childbirth was unclean. And anyone who touched a dead body was unclean. Now, I don't know if your mind thinks anything like mine, but I'm thinking, now, wait a second here. Wait just a second. Jesus and his disciples have been with lepers, tax collectors, menstruating women, and dead bodies. And so not only was Jesus unclean by definition, but he had set himself up as an opponent to the scribes and the Pharisees' prescribed method of worship. That's why Jesus was an enemy of the state. Because he looked at the religious leaders of the day and said, your method is wrong, first of all, but not only is your method wrong, but you're hypocrites. Because though you demand that others worship according to the method, you yourself look for loopholes. You don't even do it. It's a sham. It's a ploy. It's a movie reel. It's a film. It's all fake. None of it's real. You look great on the outside. Remember, Jesus took the the Pharisees to task in Matthew 23. He said, you look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And everything unclean. Listen for just a second here. Just humor me. Listen to the extent of the oral law concerning uncleanliness here. Okay, A hollow vessel. A hollow vessel. Made of pottery could contract uncleanliness inside but not outside. That's to say it did not matter what or who it touched outside. But it did matter what touched it inside. If it became unclean, it must be broken, and no unbroken piece must remain which was big enough to hold enough ointment to cover the little toe. A flat plate, that's a plate without a rim, could not become unclean, but a plate with a rim could become unclean. If a vessel was made of leather or bone or glass and they were flat, they could not contract uncleanliness, but if they were hollow, they could become unclean both inside and outside. If they were unclean, they must be broken. And that break must leave a hole big enough for a medium-sized pomegranate to pass through it. Okay, here's a good one. This is great. A three-legged table could contract uncleanliness. If it lost one or two of its legs, it could not. If it lost three of its legs, it could, because then it could be used as a board, and boards could become unclean. Things made of metal could become unclean, except for a door, a bolt, a lock, or a hinge. Wood used in metal utensils could become unclean, but metal used in wood utensils could not. Thus, a wooden key with metal teeth could not become unclean, but a metal key with wooden teeth could. Can can you see how burdensome the traditions of men became? But this is what the teachers of the day were telling the people they had to do to please God. You can imagine how this inflamed Jesus. This is the antithesis of the gospel. This is the antithesis of why he had come. This is the antithesis of the crucifixion. This is the antithesis of the resurrection. To the scribes and the Pharisees, rules and regulations were the essence of worship. To observe them was to please God. To break them was to sin. Again, this was their idea of goodness or godliness. 
When it came to matters of worship and relating to God, uh, Jesus and the religious leaders spoke vastly different languages. These washing rituals not only indicated a wrong attitude toward people, specifically the Gentiles, a wrong attitude in the Jews concerning the Gentiles, that they would somehow become unclean if they contacted anything, came into contact with anything that a Gentile touched. But these rules, these washings, these rituals also conveyed a wrong idea about sin and personal holiness. Remember, Jesus made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount, we studied through the Sermon on the Mount not too, too long ago, that true holiness, true worship was a matter of inward affection and attitude, not just outward affections and associations. You see, the problem with their rules is that they weren't from God. They were the tradition of the elders. And so there's a burning question here. Look at verse 5. Mark writes, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, I have a question for you here. Why do you suppose the scribes and the Pharisees Ask Jesus this question instead of asking it to his disciples. Why do you suppose that the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus why his disciples ate with unclean hands instead of going right to the disciples? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus for an explanation of his disciples' conduct because as their teacher, he was responsible for them. And again, they were looking for a reason to indict him. They were looking for a reason to crucify him, to destroy him, to take him out. And so they come to Jesus, and they say, you tell us. I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. You tell us, why do your disciples eat with unwashed, defiled, unclean hands? They suspected that the disciples' failure to wash properly indicated that Jesus disregarded the traditions of the elders. It's interesting to note, too, that uh, this word walk here, it's emphasized. To walk was a Hebrew figure of speech, uh, which, which meant to, uh, to, to walk in a habitual way. Uh, Psalm 1-1 would be there. Do not walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. That means in, in, a, in a continual way. The scribes and the Pharisees say, why do your disciples continually disregard the tradition of the elders? This infuriated the scribes and the Pharisees. Number two on your outline. Jesus condemns worthless worship. Jesus condemns worthless worship. Look at verses 6 through 9, and he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines and the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. In order to establish your own tradition. It's, it's interesting to notice here in the text, too, that uh, Jesus does not directly answer the question that is posed to him by the scribes and Pharisees. They ask him a question in verse 5. Look at verse 6. Jesus does not answer the question. He doesn't answer the question. It's because they're not looking for a reasoned, well-intentioned answer. And so instead of playing into their hands, Jesus exposes the scribes and the Pharisees as frauds. 
What Jesus exposes here is, is hearts and lips that don't agree. It's very possible. It's very possible that some of us in here this morning have hearts and lips that don't agree. Jesus accuses the scribes and the Pharisees of hypocrisy. Hypocrites is the word there. The word hypocrisy, it's got an interesting and a, and, and a, a depthy history. It begins by meaning simply one who answers. You're asked a question, someone who answers. But it goes on to mean one who answers in a set dialogue or in a set conversation. In other words, it means someone who simply reads a script. Someone who simply reads a script. That's to say an actor. And finally, it means not simply an actor on the stage, but one whose life is a piece of acting without any sincerity at all. Anyone to whom worship is simply a legal matter, anyone to whom worship means just carrying out certain external rules and regulations, anyone to whom worship is entirely connected to the observation of this and that, do and don't, keeping certain taboos, is bound to be, in the end, a hypocrite. Someone just wearing a mask practicing, but only reading the script. Jesus reminds the scribes and the Pharisees of a well-known passage in Isaiah 29, 13 that condemns their worthless worship practices. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And what Jesus is doing there is he's exposing. He's saying, you're looking at me as the fraud. Let, let me expose your worthless worship. And I'm going to do it by starting at the prophets. I'm going to take you to the law here in just a minute, but I'm going to start at the prophets because you're wrong in both places. The law and the prophets stand against you. Remember, the heart is the part of the man that God chiefly notices when it comes to worship. It's the part of a woman that God chiefly notices when it comes to worship. God reminds us in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? At the heart. The heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. That's what Jesus is saying. The bowed head and the bended knee and the grave face and the rigid posture and, the, and the, the ready response and the formal amen, all these together don't make up a spiritual worshiper. The eyes of God look further and the eyes of God look deeper. He requires worship of the heart. Not just what we perform on the outside, but what's going on inside. It must not content us to take our bodies to church if we leave our hearts at home. God is concerned with the heart. You know, the eye of man may detect no flaw in your or my service in what we do or what we say. Our minister may look at us with hearty approval. Our neighbors may think of us as patterns of what a Christian ought to be. Our voice may be heard foremost in prayer and praise and worship, but it is all worse than nothing in God's sight if our hearts are far away. You catch that? challenging for me as a pastor 
My life is all oftentimes on display. It's on display here on Sunday mornings. It's on display when I walk down the bread aisle at Walmart. It's on display as I stand on the soccer field. My kiddos are playing the game. And I'm engaging with other dads or other parents. My life is always on display. I feel like at times. And so there can be then that temptation to perform, to play the part, to act the part, to read the script. To be what people think a pastor should be. And that's, there, there's a part of that that is right and godly and true and good. I ought to want to do that. You ought to want to reflect well upon Jesus. But if all we're doing is reading the script and we look great on the outside, but the inside's a hot mess, it's worthless worship. It's worthless worship. Legalism is what Jesus is exposing here, or spiritual hypocrisy. It takes into account a man or a woman's outward actions, but it takes into greater consideration the attitudes and the actions and the motivations of the heart. What's going on inside? There is no greater religious peril than that of worship with outward appearance only. The fundamental question is, how, how is our heart, how is your heart before God? Jesus is showing a clear progression here in the text. It's interesting. Look at your Bible here. Look at verse 8. The scribes and the Pharisees first, they leave, that is to neglect or abandon the commandments of God. He says, you, you have left the commandments of God. Look at verse 9. The scribes and the Pharisees become experts at rejecting now the commandments of God, at setting them aside. Not only have you left them, neglected them, or abandoned them, but you've rejected them. You've set them aside. And then look at verse 13. We'll be here in just a second. This is, this is the last here of the progression. The scribes and the Pharisees make void. That is, they cancel or nullify the word of God. They neglect them. They reject them. And then they make them void. Said another way, the scribes and the Pharisees added traditions to Scripture. They've added something to Scripture. Then what happened is they placed their traditions above Scripture. And then they came to honor their traditions above Scripture as well. Not only did they place them above Scripture, but they honored them above Scripture. Jesus condemns worthless worship. Brothers, sisters, friends... How is your heart? How is your heart? What's going on under the hood? That's what God's concerned with. Number three, Jesus corrects worthless worship. Jesus corrects worthless worship. Look at verses 10 through 13. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die, but you say... Here's your tradition. You say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God. I'll explain that in just a second. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Here's, here's what happened, friends. The scribes and the Pharisees, and, and really spiritually pious Jews came up with a brilliant way to break God's law, to violate God's word without guilt. 
That's, that's what's taking place here in verses 10 through 13. Jesus, what he does here is he gives the scribes and the Pharisees an example of how their self-serving traditions have actually replaced the word of God. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they profess to honor Moses. They profess to honor him through whom God commanded Israel to honor their parents. As a matter of fact, God threatened uh, death upon disobedience of this commandment. But the scribes and the Pharisees, pious Jews here, found loopholes that allowed them to wiggle out of this responsibility. Let's talk about this word korban here for just a second. Korban is an English translation of a Greek translation of a Hebrew word. Catch it? An English transliteration of a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word simply means gift or something that's devoted to God, given over to God. Korban was essentially an offering. It could, could have been anything, but it, it was an offering that involved an irrevocable vow of dedication to God. And so whatever it was that was dedicated to God, it couldn't be used for, for any other purpose. But there was no prescribed way that the offering had to be used. And so this particular practice was oftentimes used as a loophole. In other words, whatever was offered or de dedicated to God, whatever was given to God as a gift, we'll talk about the specific instance here in just a second, was just a way of evading the other clear laws of God. Sound twisted? It was. It was very twisted. And so Jesus makes issue with one prominent way that this tradition of Korban was used in a very self-serving manner. It was very common practice in Jesus' day uh, to make an offering of your wealth to the Lord by invoking the vow of Korban. Okay? By making a vow of Korban to the Lord or a gift to the Lord of your wealth, a person could keep their wealth throughout their life, use it how they wished, and then upon their death, if there was anything left, it was given to the temple or the priest. This was a way to shield their wealth. They, they, they would just say, hey, everything in account ending 5134, that's Korban. Okay? I have vowed that to God. That has been given over as a gift to God. It has been dedicated to God. Therefore, it cannot be used for anything else. Now, I can skim off the top all day long, but I can't use that to pay any, any creditors back. I can't use that to help anybody else because it's been given to God. Sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? devious. It's devious. And so here, in this case, if your parents needed assistance in their old age, you could simply refuse to help them because your wealth had been set aside to God. Uh, Mom and dad can't help you. Uh, my wealth, it's Korban. It's a gift to God. Uh, carry on. Farewell. It was just to get around the clear teaching to honor one's mother and father. Likewise, a creditor could invoke korban to a debtor. It was a way uh, for, a, for a creditor that could, could come to someone who owed them money and say, listen, your, your debt that you owe me, well, it's now korban. So actually, you don't owe it to me primarily. You owe it to God. And so it was a way to manipulate. And so what the person that was owed the money would do is they, they'd put a few coins here you know, in the temple treasury, and they would take everything that the person repaid them. It's just twisted. It was also a way for the priest to make a few bucks, because according to church history, priests oftentimes charge 50 shekels to a man and 30 shekels to a woman to cancel korban. So if you said, or, or you, you said something was korban, you set aside something as a gift to God, and then you decided later, hey, I want to cancel that, it cost you money to do so. So there was, there was no incentive to cancel that vow. 
Ultimately, the practice of Korban annulled the moral commandments of God in favor of ritualistic practice. But Jesus exposes the heart here of the scribes and Pharisees. And he does so by showing them, listen, guys, you have violated not only the prophets. You, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. But you've also trampled on Moses, whom you say you revere. Because Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. You see, to God, all this is worthless worship. It's hypocrisy. If we're all concerned about the externals, our worship is bitter to God, and he rejects it. Now, friends, legalism, which is really the definition of what we're talking about here, spiritual hypocrisy or legalism, it's a really slippery slope. We can become legalists pretty quick, as a matter of fact. We can hold others to, to a religious standard that is not given to us in the Bible. I mean, we, we do things as a, as a local congregation, as a church, uh, in, in, a, in unique ways that may differ from another church. But we, just have to, we have to keep in mind that those things aren't law. We're going to observe communion here in just a few minutes, and, and we don't pass a plate. We have individuals come to, uh, to, to, to take communion, but that's not law. That's not a hill we can die on. So yes, there are traditions that we observe. The problem is when those traditions eclipse Scripture. Legalism is a slippery slope here. Let me just give you a couple of parting thoughts here. When it comes to legalism or spiritual hypocrisy, it's very easy to think that others are hypocrites, that others are legalists, and we ourselves are not. In other words, it's very easy to be blinded by legalism and spiritual hypocrisy. Secondly, legalism spreads very quickly and easy. We love to gather people around us, right, who, who obey our laws and our commandments and our way of doing things, right? Legalism makes us think that we're better and that we have it all together, causes us to look down on others. Rule makers are some of the most mean-spirited people in the world. And then lastly here, legalism or spiritual hypocrisy, when it's marketed as Christianity, which it is in, in a number of churches, it makes Jesus look very unattractive. Because all we're telling the people is, here's the set of hoops that you've got to jump through to please God, which is the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel isn't what you have to do. The gospel is what Jesus has already finished and completed. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the fact that it exposes us. Lord, each and every one of us, myself included, at times play the part. We read the script. We wear the mask. We are the hypocrites spoken about here. We heap laws and, and regulations and rules on other people that we ourselves don't even keep well, if at all. Lord, help us to remember that the gospel is not a set of dues. The gospel reminds us what Jesus has already done for us. God, I pray that you would keep us, that you would protect us from confusing the truth of the gospel with man-made religion, with man-made traditions, with man-made ways of worship. It's worthless in your eyes. It's bitter to you. You reject it. God, help us not to be content with what the outside looks like, but to evaluate the inner man, the inner woman, the heart that lies within God doesn't look at the things that man looks at. Man is content with the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
God, I pray that as you look at us as a local congregation, you would be pleased, that you would be honored. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.